Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris Smith and Dr Katani. Kat, what have you got for us first? Well, have you ever seen a burning bush? These shrubs originated in Asia, but they've managed to evade North America, and they're so-called because in autumn they have a very distinctive flame-red foliage. Now, they may look impressive, but actually they're considered to be a bit of a pest, as they're an invasive species. But researchers at Michigan State University have made a discovery that could help turn the burning bush into the saviour of future biofuels, at least according to a paper in PNAS this week. And what are they saying? The burning bush produces an unusual oil, which could be very useful for fuel and food, as it's got quite a low viscosity. That's its stickiness or thickness. Sounds like my mum's cooking. (laughs) Exactly. And many plant oils are too thick to use in diesel engines, so they have to undergo a process to convert them into biodiesel. But the oil from the burning bush is runny enough to use directly in diesel engines. It's also actually lower in calories than other plant oils, so it might be useful for making low-cal foods. But Unfortunately, the burning bush isn't really suitable for agricultural growing and harvesting, so researchers led by Timothy Durrett sequenced the genes in a common ornamental species of burning bush to find the gene that produces the key components of the oil, these molecules called acetylglycerides. And what do they do? Well, they took this gene and then they used genetic engineering to add it to a plant called Arabidopsis. This is a little type of crest that's commonly used by a lot of plant researchers. And these modified crest plants then started making acetylglycerides, producing oil with uh, a purity up to about 80%. So it's quite promising that maybe they'll be able to produce high-quality oil on a large scale in the future, either by genetically modifying oilseed crops such as oilseed rape, that's canola for our US listeners, or in other more technological biological biofield production systems such as algae. They're not there yet, but these are exciting early results and hopefully they'll fuel further research, if you uh, pardon the terrible pun. Not as bad, or not as ironic even, as the fact that it's actually the burning bush which is uh, giving us the, the key to new, new fuels. Indeed. Thank you, Kat. Well, something that caught my eye earlier this week was the discovery as to why some people seem to be more prone to being colonised with and getting infections from Staphylococcus aureus, a kind of bacterium which includes MRSA. And this discovery is important because it could pave the way for developing novel ways to treat the problem or identify patients who might be at risk of staph infections and therefore managing them a bit better in hospital. So what's the story? How does this work? Well, this is a paper that's come out of Japan. It's Tadayuki Awazi, who's a researcher at Jikei University's School of Medicine over in Japan. What they did was to take swabs from 88 patients and they found, predictably, that one-third of them were positive for Staphylococcus aureus because we know that roughly one in three people carries this bug in the population. What was interesting, though, is that they found that nearly 100% of those people were also colonised with a relative of Staph aureus called Staph epidermidis. This is a human-friendly bacterium, what we would dub a good bacterium, which lives on the majority of us and does us no harm normally. But the researchers wondered whether there was something special about the type of Staph epidermidis that the people who had Staph aureus carriage actually had. So what they did was to painstakingly look at every single chemical that was produced by these Staph epidermidis strains of bacteria carried by these people when they grew. And they then compared the strains of Staph epidermidis and the chemicals they made with whether or not someone was carrying Staph aureus. And, amazingly, they found a difference. People that are colonised with Staph aureus, the Staph epidermidis that they carry lacks a gene 
which is a gene which encodes a protein. It's a gene called ESP, and it encodes a protein that makes the bacterial equivalent of mace spray. It basically disperses or nukes colonies of Staphylococcus aureus. So basically there are different strains of Staph epidermidis, the good bacteria we can carry on us, and about half of the Staph epidermidis that people carry can fend off Staph aureus with this particular gene, this ESP gene, which disperses Staph aureus colonies. You might say, well, why would one strain of bacterium want to commit biological warfare against one of its close relatives? Well, the answer is purely selfishness. The bugs that live on our bodies and in our bodies are all competing against each other for a limited amount of space and limited resources. So by developing this sort of chemical elbow out of the way, what these bugs are doing is basically securing their own future at the expense of these potential invaders. So what does this discovery now mean? Can we come up with some kind of, you know, bactericide based on this? That's what they're saying. It may be possible to do probably two things. One is because people who carry the abnormal form of Staph epidermidis, the one that doesn't defend them against Staph aureus, are more prone to getting infected and and getting problems with Staph aureus and MRSA. Perhaps when microbiologists swab patients in hospital looking for people who are carrying Staph aureus and MRSA, perhaps they could also look at their Staph epidermidis and see if they've got this gene. Because if people don't carry that particular strain, they're less likely to get Staph infections. That's the first point. Second point is, yes, maybe we can take a leaf out of nature's chemistry book and borrow the same technique that these bugs are using to kill off their Staph aureus relatives and we could develop an antibiotic that basically works the same way. Real life example of germ warfare I guess. Anyway let's turn our attention to fertility and infertility. Now unlike men who are constantly producing new sperm women have to work with a fixed number of egg cells from birth. Us girls are born with around 800,000 immature dormant egg cells known as follicles and a couple of thousand of these are activated by hormones during each menstrual cycle ticking down our biological clock until the menopause. So there's a certain amount of time pressure on becoming a mum at least in the biological sense. But now an international team of scientists writing in the journal PNAS this week have found a way to reactivate these dormant egg cells and it could have big benefits for infertile women or those who've had their ovary tissue frozen before treatment for diseases such as cancer. Sounds terrific. How have they done it, though? Well, this is work from Jing Li at Stanford University in the US and researchers in China, Japan and America, and it all hinges on a gene called P10. Now, using mice, Li and her team found that shutting off P10 using a special chemical could activate the dormant egg follicles in the ovaries of newborn mice. And when they transplanted these follicles into adult female mice whose ovaries had been removed, they could produce mature eggs and even baby mice. Which is very neat, but isn't if my memory serves me correctly, P10 also involved in protecting cells from cancer. So if you block it, doesn't that mean you could be at risk of getting tumours? That's a very good point. But luckily, the researchers actually didn't find any tumours developing when they did these experiments. And instead, the activated follicles always developed into mature eggs, which produced healthy baby mouse pups. And these pups grew into adults and had healthy babies of their own, suggesting there aren't any fundamental inherited problems with the cells or the DNA inside them. Lovely for mice. What about men? Or maybe I should say women? Well, obviously it's more challenging to do these experiments in humans, but the researchers did manage to do some tests on ovary tissue that had been taken from women having operations for ovarian cancer. And treating them with a P10 blocking chemical did cause follicles to mature and produce egg cells, but unfortunately it looks like there might be a few problems with these eggs. So we're not sure that it will work in women, and a lot more research is needed to be done before we know if we can actually use this technique to treat infertility.
fertile food for thought, I'd say. Thank you very much, Kat. Now, also this week, uh, we've seen the J. Craig Venter Institute announce the creation to huge fanfare of a brand new synthetic microorganism, which has been dubbed by some as Cynthia. Now, this has provoked a lot of excitement, but also a large amount of controversy, and some have argued that Cynthia isn't entirely synthetic. So to tell us more, here's Craig Venter and Victoria Gill. Their genetic heritage is the computer. So it is absolutely the first uh, synthetic life form, a a cell-driven, controlled totally by synthetic DNA. So we call it synthetic because everything in the cell has been made and dictated by that synthetic chromosome, even though we do start with another uh, living species Uh, We use that to initially read the genetic code and until it can transform itself into the species controlled uh, and dictated by that synthetic chromosome. That's Dr. Craig Venter from the eponymous J. Craig Venter Institute talking about his research team's new synthetic cells. But are they really synthetic cells? Is this synthetic life? Well, strictly speaking, it's just the genome that's synthetic. What they've done is taken a copy of an existing bacterial genome, looked at all the DNA inside a simple bacterial cell. They've decoded that on a computer, and then they've taken that and used the information to chemically construct a new genome, synthesising a genome in the lab from scratch. It's an impressive technological step, but many biologists say that it's overstating the development to call it synthetic life. But their new cell does live. It's replicated now over a billion times. So why are scientists doing this? Well, Dr. Venter says the endeavour began as an effort to understand life on the most intimate level. What he's developed now, he says, are the tools to design new organisms, which could mark a new era of biotechnology. I think they're going to potentially create a new industrial revolution if we can really get cells to do the production we want, if they could help wean us off of oil Uh, and reverse some of the damage to the environment by capturing back carbon dioxide, I would be pretty satisfied with that outcome uh, alone. We think uh, some of the earliest applications people will see is in new vaccines. We can make in a day new flu vaccines uh, that have taken much longer to produce by conventional methods. And we're working with the National Institutes of Health and Novartis to build the process for Uh, very rapidly as new infections emerge to synthetically in 24 hours or less make those vaccine candidates and get them into testing. But these claims too have sparked criticism, not just by scientists who feel the potential of this technology has been overstated, but by the wider community. Julian Salvalescu, an ethics professor from the University of Oxford, has said that the potential of this science is, although very far in the future, very real and significant, dealing with pollution and creating the new energy sources that Dr Venter himself is so enthusiastic about. But as he pointed out, the risks are also unparalleled. And this is a very rapidly moving and new field. It seems that the regulatory and safety discussions haven't really kept pace. This technology could be used in the future to make some very powerful bioweapons. That's a very extreme example, but the potential is there. It's less than 15 years since Dr. Venter first announced that he wanted to create a synthetic organism, and we're already at this stage. What concerns many people now is that the pace of this exciting new field of biology should not overtake those ethical and safety discussions. As Professor Salvalescu puts it, the challenge now is to eat the fruit without the worm. 
That was Victoria Gill and Craig Venter on the possibilities heralded by Cynthia, the first microorganism with an entirely synthetic genome. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Kat. Now, 2010 is the International Year of Biodiversity, and a park in the centre of Bristol may not seem the obvious place to study biodiversity. Depends what you're up to, I suppose. But this weekend, Blaze Park has been host to what's known as a BioBlitz, which is an attempt to find and catalogue all the different types of wildlife that you might come across. BioBlitzes are going to be happening all over the country in the next few months. So to explain more about what's coming and to hear about what they've done over the weekend, we're joined by Ed Druitt, and he's from the Bristol Natural History Consortium. Hello, Ed. Hello, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you for joining us. First of all, could you tell us what actually is a BioBlitz? Yeah, well, a BioBlitz is basically an opportunity to bring uh, scientific experts, naturalists, volunteers and the public schools and families together to basically see and find as many different species that are living in an area as possible. So as you mentioned, in Bristol, we did it at Blaise Castle Estate, and we had lots of uh, schools on the Friday and then families on the Saturday engaging with experts and naturalists and volunteers looking for the different trees, lichens, uh, aquatic insects, birds, and, and everything else that lives up there. And what are you hoping to get out of this? Why do we think this is worth doing? primarily really to sort of engage the publics, engage people in different parts of the country, in this case in Bristol really, with what's on their doorstep and opening people's eyes up to what's actually there. But also there's some real kind of scientific outputs as well. On the BioBlitz that we had over the last couple of days or so, we found 536 species, of which two were nationally scarce and I think not really recorded before including ones such as the grass, rubulet, moth, for example. And so it's an opportunity to find out what's there and to then be able to advise, the, for example, the land manager for Blaze, which is owned by Bristol City Council, on what's there and what they can do to help some of that, that wildlife. A lot of that data then goes, or all of that data then goes to the Bristol Regional Environmental Records Centre, and they then put that data into a special database, which can be used by members of the public, and uh, businesses who perhaps want to then find out what's on there, particularly, for example, if there was a, a building application, which is probably not going to happen on this particular place, but might happen elsewhere in the country. And so we can have a good idea of what's actually living at the, in these places. So when people come along to get involved, how will they actually uh, go out and, and collect the data? Will they be given a, a pooter, one of those pots with tubes coming out to suck things up, or do they go around in little teams? How's That's the data right, gathered? Yeah. Well, basically, we had families, let's say, you know, you might have had, say, 10 people, it might be two or three families going out with a, with a naturalist and a couple of volunteers. So they might, for example, be going into some grasslands. So they'll take out a couple of sweep nets and some white trays and, and ID charts and actually be doing their own sweep netting and discovering what's in that grassland. Likewise, if they're looking in a stream or a pond, they'd obviously be doing that with nets and also using pooters as well to get some of the very tiny insects. And then that information is then put onto recording forms, which is kind of almost like quality controlled through the naturalist who will be putting that onto the recording forms. And from there, then that gets put onto the actual database. So it's very much about getting the public and schools hands-on with nature. So we had school children and families properly doing sweep netting and then really discovering on a small, you know, small kind of minute level what was actually living on their doorstep. And what do the scientists and naturalists who you've had involved in this, what do they make of it and are they supportive? Absolutely. I think that what we found early on, particularly perhaps uh, in previous years, and last year when we first sort of started this, was scientists and naturalists being particularly modest about themselves and don't always necessarily see themselves as someone who, who can offer loads of, loads of opportunities. But I think now we've, we've got the balance right of 
being able to enable and give the confidence to naturalists and, and other scientists to come forward and realise that they can feel empowered and actually take uh, families or school groups out themselves and actually engage people with them. So it's had a very positive uh, output and I think it's a really nice way. I think people that have enjoyed actually uh, transferring their knowledge and their skills onto people perhaps who wouldn't normally uh, engage or, or do this sort of thing. And it's not just Bristol, this is going to be scaled up or is going to be taken to other cities around the country, so we'll have one coming to Cambridge, won't we? Absolutely, that's right. So Bristol has been leading on this in terms of being one of the first uh, cities to do this this year, linking in with the Year of Biodiversity. And there's going to be lots of other ones, over uh, 15 or 16 across the country taking place. And people can find out where they're taking place by visiting the website bioblitzuk.org.uk. And as you say, you can find out where things are going to be happening close to you. There's going to be one in Derby, there'll be one that Natural History Museum are doing down down on the coast in in Devon, for example. So they're going to be happening all across the country. And therefore, uh, families, the public, scientists can all engage on a local scale. And finally, Ed, what do the people who come and take part, members of the public, actually make of the experience? Do they, do they think it's just a, a run around in the grass if they're kiddies, or do they actually take away the scientific message as well? I think people have actually really been engaging. When you've seen people actually getting down to the minute level and wanting to do more, and we've had lots of families come back. So we had families, for example, doing the Dawn Chorus Walk, and then they came back later on to perhaps do some stream sampling or doing some, some insect work. So from what we can tell so far, it's been a very positive engagement with people wanting to come back and do more and hopefully continue with our Bristol Fest of Nature that we've got, for example, in a couple of weeks' time in June. Ed, brilliant. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's uh, Ed Druitt from the Bristol Natural History Consortium. And as he said, you can find out if there's a BioBlitz happening near you from the website bioblitzuk.org.uk. Also, if you'd like to find out anything about any of the news stories we've covered on this week's show so far, they're all on our website with the references and, and other supporting materials at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.